What would you do if you could do anything? Welcome back to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. It kind of breaks down this narrative of the Venn diagram where it has to be something the world needs, which I think is a little bit more grand and it's hard to take action. You take action with hoping and anticipating that it's going to be worth it. What that means is that you do not have to know for certain. It's really actually an acceptance at this moment in time, the action that I could take today that I believe is going to give me a life worth living is Ikigai. We are back and recharged after our summer break with a brand new season of The Purpose Effect. And today I'm talking to founder of Magami Wellness, Sayori Okada. Sayori and I connected when she reached out to me to correct something that I had said in a previous podcast. I was talking about the Japanese concept of ikigai, which I defined as meaning purpose, and in particular, professional purpose. But it turns out that that's pretty inaccurate and misses a lot of the nuance of the concept. So I invited her onto the show to explain exactly what ikigai really is and how we can all use traditional Japanese concepts of wellness to lead a more authentic and meaningful life. We talk about ikigai and longevity, as well as ikigai and authenticity. But to begin with, we talk about how Sayori left her job in media analytics in New York City to set up a wellness coaching business in London. So before Mogami Wellness, I worked in New York City. And I know, Elena, we were in somewhat of a similar industry uh, where I worked in media analytics. I worked for a company called Comscore, and I worked there for about seven years. You know, I studied business analytics in college, and I've always loved data. I always found it to be fascinating, and especially being in the technology and media industry, it was very intellectually stimulating in that sense because it was always changing. You're always learning new things. But, you know, I think when COVID hit, it was probably five years into my career, and I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do long term. So it's part of that. I always was interested in health and wellness. I think it comes from the fact that I grew up from a family of healthcare professionals. Uh, my father's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. My sister's also a doctor. And so I feel as though that kind of mindset was always top of mind for me. So I went about getting educated. And so I, I think Mogami Wellness came to be simultaneously, which I think is something that's really important. Uh, personally, I like to do things in um, you know, parallel. So while I was working, I went to a two-year wellness coaching program to get certified as a uh, wellness coach. And then I also was back in Japan for COVID. I was uh, working remotely, and that gave me the first time since I was 18 to live in Japan for an extended period of time. And what was really fascinating was that all of the frameworks and ways of thinking about wellness uh, that I learned in school was very much part of my culture of what I, how I grew up with in, in Japanese culture. And I simply didn't have the vision to see it. A lot of these practices that you talk about, you know, 
authenticity, soul care, you know, minimalism. Were these parts of your daily practices or your family practices growing up? Did this feel very intuitive to you? Yes, it did. And I think that it's really interesting that I think I was very much, my, I was growing up, I, I was very much mind driven. And what I mean by that is I always use my thoughts. I always use my data points to try to make sense of the world. And what I realized was that when I was going through my wellness coaching, that a lot of it has to do with more of a holistic perspective, Mm -hmm. meaning you can't just always rely on your mind. You have to listen to your body. You have to listen to what your soul is telling you. And so um, when I finally got over that, I was able to understand that growing up Japanese, there are so many ways that you realize that it's really about a holistic approach. And what I mean by that is I usually look at the our language. So I think language is such an interesting way to understand culture. So when I look back at the Japanese words that I use growing up, for example, when we explain ourselves in Japanese, so you have a kokoro and karada. And so a kokoro is your soul and your heart, and then you have a karada, which is your body. And so if we, you know, take a moment to think about that, it means that we're actually acknowledging that we have a soul and we have a heart to take care of. Right. So can you just explain how you would express that in the Japanese language? Would you explain yourself in this way when you were introducing yourself to someone, for example? Mm, That's a great question. I think... Japanese culture tends to be pretty subtle in that sense where it's not necessarily so strongly, you know, if I were introducing myself, I would say, yes, my name is Ori. But I think in everyday conversations, for example, if you say that you went to an onsen, which is a Japanese hot springs, which is something that's very typical to do during either vacations or on weekends, uh, you know, you say, oh, I was looking for that like soul rejuvenation. Okay. And that's a very normal thing to say. So, you know, you're saying you're looking for, you know, I needed that break for myself. Yeah. Okay. I've got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which in Western culture is kind of only recently starting to become like acceptably, acceptable mains, in a mainstream way. Right. Exactly. So I do think I am seeing a shift in the Western culture where, you know, I hear people say Zen, you know, which is really interesting because uh, in Japanese, you don't really, it exists, but you don't really say Zen. Like I, you don't really say I feel Zen. Uh, it's probably more along the lines of I feel rejuvenated or my heart feels rejuvenated. So I do see it's a similar way of expressing just probably in a different way. Right. Okay. So let's just go back again to your journey. You had done this coaching program. The pieces for a business were starting to come together in your mind. And then you moved to London to establish this business? Yes, that's right. So I think I went through a series of figuring out where I wanted to go. And, you know, I also think that I want to be honest and say it's not like I planned everything out and I was stuck on a plan. I more so realized that I started in my spare time coaching clients as well as trying to just educate people on these this different way of thinking that comes from, you know, it's rooted in culture that's, you know, focused on longevity. And so um, I saw a lot of impact in that was work. Sometimes I would just talk about to my team about it. And I would also tell my friends. And, um, you know, when I was seeing such 
powerful impact that I was having in empowering them, I realized that I feel as though I should be on a different path. Yeah. And then from there, it was really about asking and asking for help. You know, I really asked my community and said, you know, okay, I'm thinking about changing careers. Uh, You know, do you have any advice or how should I go about this? And that's when I found uh, there's a startup visa in the UK. So the way it works is you have to, you know, pitch your own business and then get sponsorship from a endorsing body. Okay. That's government approved. And then through that process, you're able to move to London to start your business. And so I went through that process and I was lucky enough to get that visa. And so I moved to London last August. So you mentioned longevity just now and that a lot of these practices, which are very much part of Japanese culture, part of your way of life, are rooted in a desire for longevity. So I think maybe it's it's useful to start, first of all, with defining what longevity means from a Japanese perspective, because it's not just about living for a really long time, right? It's more than that. That's a great question, Elena. I would explain describe longevity in the Japanese context using a saying. So mm. in Japanese, there's a saying called ping ping korori. And if we just break that down, if we translate that, it means that you want to be as active as you can for a long time. And then you want to, you know, end your life. And so like as a naturally. So meaning it's this idea where you want to have active aging. Yeah. And so what we mean by that is that you don't want to, you want to have extend as many healthy years that you have in your natural lifespan than living just for a long time because that is the whole goal of longevity from a Japanese perspective. So you want to be able to move, you want to be able to enjoy life to the fullest, meaning you have a healthy heart, you have a healthy body um, throughout your long like yeah. lifespan. So you want to live well for as long as possible or for you know the duration of your years. Exactly. Okay, so then let's get into this topic of Ikigai, which is how you and I first connected, because Ikigai is often talked about in terms of longevity. How is it related? So I would describe it as Ikigai roughly translates to your reason for being. Mm -hmm. And so Ikigai or having a longing for an Ikigai Mm -hmm. helps us because it gives us a mindset towards life. Okay. And if we break down the word itself, it means that you are focused on more of the daily aspects of what makes you your authentic self and what gives you reason for being. So so it can help us really, you know, give us a, a reason to live because we understand and appreciate that we have a life worth living. Yeah. It also sounds like And I know I'm interpreting what you're saying very much from the perspective of an English speaker, but the way you're describing it sounds progressive, like this is a journey. The pursuit of Ikigai is a journey which gives your life meaning, and this is what allows you to live well into your old age, which is quite different to how Ikigai has been 
popularized, I suppose, in the West, particularly recently. And so now I want to talk about this infamous Venn diagram that purports to explain Ikigai. And for those who don't know what I'm talking about, there is a Venn diagram, which has been very popular recently, which is sort of an illustrative translation of Ikigai. And it describes it as being the intersection of what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what you can you know, actually be paid to do. Now, I know you've done some research into the origins of this diagram, and I would love to talk about it and whether it does, in fact, do anything at all to explain Ikigai as a concept or a practice. Yeah. So I did some research. I think given I worked in market research, I was very curious and wanted to get down to how this came to be. But if we look at what happened, uh, with all, which is also the best intentions, I want to be clear here. I really do think they had the best intentions in trying to translate a difficult concept. Yeah. But essentially... Uh, there was a TED Talk done by Dan Butner, who is a reporter in the National Geographic. And he talked about Ikigai as one of the key concepts for longevity. Mm-hmm. And so there was a blogger in 2014 named Mark Wynn, and he heard Dan's TED Talk. Okay. And from there, he found a different purpose model made by Andrew Zuzunaga, who is a Spanish astrologer. Okay. And Mark essentially (laughs) took purpose and changed it to Ikigai. And then he wrote a blog post about it. Mm -hmm. And the rest is history, as we often say. Yeah. What What was your feeling when you first saw this diagram, when you first read the blog post, as a Japanese person who is familiar with what this context, what this concept means in your own culture, what were you thinking? I had a lot of emotions <laughs> and feelings come up for me. <laughs> I can imagine. And I think <laughs> I was a very much a series of emotions. I would say there was first, I was genuinely shocked because I was confused why I've never seen such Venn diagram in Japan. And so I was more so shocked. And then second, I tried to look into it. I tried to get really, I think this is where my mind was working. So I did my research and then I I asked a lot of my community members in Japan, my friends, my family to really just try to get more information and see, have you ever heard of this? Or, you know, do you know where this is coming from? And, uh, you know, I think all of them, were very shocked and similar similar to my reaction. And then three, I think the last emotion I had was that I it was I was actually really sad. And the reason why I say sad was because, you know, if you really understand Ikigai, it's something that extends far beyond your job. And it really is individualistic and it also is something that comes from your heart and comes from your soul and can also change over time. And so I just remember feeling sad for someone because I didn't want them to use this Venn diagram thinking and limiting themselves to their job because 
I think that someone's job is, of course, a key component of their life, but it's not everything. And so I was more so concerned that if people use that, the Venn diagram, they would be limiting themselves and get trapped in a more limiting framework that actually is not going to serve them. Yeah, I think that's interesting. So how does it misunderstand Ikigai then? Because you You've mentioned a few things. Um, you've said that it's not just about your job. It's about a full, holistic, full body concept of, of purpose. Um, and I, it's difficult to use that word because I know that purpose and ikigai do not directly translate, even though maybe it is uh, as close of a translation as you can get to the concept in the English language. Um, these are always the things that are difficult. So how does it misunderstand Ikigai? What, what is it that is missing in this Venn diagram? So if we look at Ikigai, the word is actually made up of two individual words. So the concept of Ikigai is Iki and Gai, and they're actually two separate words. So Iki means to live, and then Gai means worth living, Okay. And so if we combine those, it means your life worth living. Okay. And that's probably how you can translate it to purpose. Right. But what's really interesting about Japanese is that there's additional nuances and definitions within the word that can give us hints into what it means to appreciate ikigai. Okay. And so what I mean by that is iki is to live, but the three definitions that are applicable here is that it also means life itself. So you have a life. That's also what it means. It means to be alive. Okay. To be born is also the word for that. And then the third aspect is that it's used for words to mean daily living. And then gai is, of course, overall, it means worth living. But if we look at the additional nuances of this definition is that it's you take action hoping that your results will be worth it. And so if we take a look at these nuances, then it could actually help us understand why the Venn diagram is not serving us. For example, if we understand that it's those daily aspects that you take while you're alive it kind of breaks down this narrative of the Venn diagram where it has to be something the world needs, which I think is a little bit more grand and it's hard to take action. Yeah. And then also the second part is, for example, we said that it's worth, you take action with hoping and anticipating that it's going to be worth it. What that means is that you do not have to know for certain it's really actually an acceptance that you don't know 100% that this is your reason for being. Hmm. It's more so, okay, I understand that and accept that there's so many things out of my control. I also might change over time. But at this moment in time, the action that I could take today that I believe is going to give me a life worth living is Ikigai is X, is Y. You know, you could fill in the blank. It's more about how can you be yourself today? And so 
that is more of what Ikigai is. Ikigai is actually tied in more with authenticity than the Venn diagram. So it's almost a practice. Like it's a daily practice of living authentically or truthfully. Yes, that is spot on. One criticism that I have certainly had um, with this podcast, because we talk about purpose, is that it can be considered inward-facing, selfish, a very individualistic approach to one's reason for being. Ikigai, I guess, is self-directed, but it's also not grand. It's not assuming you're going to change the world. It's really about what is your daily practice of showing up authentically. So is Ikigai very inward-facing and individual? Is there any element of collectivism or, you know, collective responsibility in the concept? That's a great question and something that I reflect on as well. I think that the notion that, you know, self-reflection, self-care or self-awareness is selfish is not true. And what I mean by that is, if we think about Japan, it is a collectivism culture. And so the fact that this word exists within a collectivism culture may be a good hint for people to reflect that these are not opposing concepts. And another key fact is that if we take a look at inward facing, you know, when we talk about our soul in Japan, there's basically three connections that our soul seeks. The one is with yourself. So you want a personal connection. And the second is community. So it's your connection to others. So this includes your friends, your family, your local community. This could be your digital community or anyone you feel as though you have a sense of belonging. And then the third aspect is environment. So you want to connect with nature. You've you know, I think we forget, but our soul naturally has this longing to spend time in nature and really rejuvenate. And so if we keep that in mind, that is to be authentic, is to care about and have connections with all three aspects. And so that's not selfish at all. It's actually more so about being intentional and thinking deeply about how you could connect with yourself, how you could connect with others, how you could connect with environment. So I think it's actually the opposite of selfish and it's actually much more of a responsible way of living. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And I also hear what you're saying, you know, about Japan being a collectivism culture. Um, I live in Malaysia. Many Asian cultures are collective cultures So many of these concepts about career and success, when looked at from an Asian perspective, have a different meaning. And success is usually viewed in terms of not just you as an individual, but what this means for your family and your wider community, the impact that that could have. Um, So I think it's really interesting to talk about that. I'm also interested in the way you visualize Ikigai, which was in terms of a puzzle. You know, Ikigai, you've described as the last piece of the wellness puzzle, at least from a Japanese perspective. So I want to talk a little bit about this and how you conceptualize that as a better way to define this. 
So the Japanese wellness puzzle, which is this approach that focuses on five key aspects of Japanese culture that's focused on longevity. So as a you know, to just go over it in brief detail, the five aspects are, you know, presence through um, mindfulness. And so what we mean by that is Japan has three traditional arts and um, they're actually meant to teach us how to live a more intentional life. And so, you know, I love how you mentioned that life is a journey in practice because the way that these arts are appreciated is it's sadol, shodol, and kadol. And Do, which is the character that explains these arts, is actually the word for path and journey. And so, you know, it's really about practicing daily moments of presence is the first aspect. And then the second and third aspect is your body care, so taking care of your body. And then the third aspect is taking care of your soul. I know we briefly talked about that. And then the fourth aspect is authenticity through understanding wabi-sabi. So wabi-sabi is this idea that, you know, if we can understand that we are part of nature and nature is the ultimate form of natural, then we should follow the same principles. So, um, you know, it's really a guide to understanding your authentic self. And then the last piece is ikigai. And so, you know, I think we talked earlier about how breaking down ikigai is more so about how can you be your authentic self every day. And so if we could appreciate that, we understand that it's important to know that Ikigai is a concept because it helps us with longevity. Yes. But it's not something that you could focus on, for example, or try to find or seek because that's supposed to come at the very end of this self-awareness journey that you're on. From doing all of the other things, from practicing all of the other elements. Exactly. I think it's it's a lot to do, but I also think it's about focusing on one thing at a time. So, um, you know, the three traditional arts are Japanese calligraphy, Japanese flower arrangement, and Japanese tea ceremony. And so I lean on calligraphy because I've practiced for about 20 years, but, you know, if we look at some of the principles, I'll share one, and I think it's really telling, but when you practice calligraphy, which is the art of having a brush and having ink and a piece of paper and writing characters, you're not allowed to double dip dip your ink while you're writing a character. So one stroke, basic, one dip, and then, yeah, as fluid as possible. Exactly. And so why is that is something I remember asking my teacher, you know, I said, why can't we double dip? You know, I've already started my character, but I need more to finish. (laughs) And so, you know, why can't I go back? (laughs) Was, you know, someone curious, I asked my teacher and, you know, he said something that it's because you have to respect your past decision and finish your piece. And what does that mean in life? That means that we are, you know, we can't go back in time, but what we can do is learn to be flexible and adjust with our past decisions. So in calligraphy, when we accept the fact that we cannot double dip and you learn to adjust your art, what you will find is that if you change the pace, if you go slower or if you go faster, then you could use how much ink you have and create beautiful characters. And 
you know, what is that is trying to teach us is that through practicing these arts, you're actually understanding how to live a more intentional life. The practice of calligraphy is focused on this concept called mushing and mushing is the state that you want to be in when you practice calligraphy and it translates to mind of no mind. So this is where you are in a space of having no thoughts, no assumptions and no biases and you're being present in the moment. So it's similar to flow state and I think you know when you are completely present and in the moment that is what calligraphy has taught me because you know my mind is very busy you know I think that's also a great strength but also sometimes it gets into overdrive and I think you know you need to actually to practice calligraphy in a authentic and respectful way is you have to completely respect it and be in the moment of art. So you have to really think about that character and be in the moment. With so much technology and external stimulus, we need to find moments of pause and presence. And calligraphy has definitely helped me do that. Yeah. You know, I think also there's a lot of attention at the moment on this idea that self-care is is relaxation. And yes, it is relaxation, but it's not necessarily face masks and spa treatments. It can also be, you know, active relaxation in terms of actively engaging your body or engaging your mind in such a way that you force it to be present. It, it really does recharge. It has this restorative effect. Um, which is not the same as the effect I have after relaxing. <laughs> yes, I think that's so true. Especially because in body care, I know we talked about it for like the Japanese wellness aspect. There's, we do like, we talk about four aspects of how to take care of your body. And that's through rest, that's through movement, that's through nourishment of food, and then also relaxation. So, you know, it's also it's all about those four aspects. So it's, are you taking enough, are you getting enough sleep? Are you moving your body? Are you nourishing it with healthy foods? And then also the last one is, is your relationship actually. So it's how do you have a healthy and good relationship with your body? So this is more about how you're talking to yourself. How are you taking care of your body? So, you know, I, I do agree that sometimes I think people think, you know, self-care is all about going, getting your nails done and, that definitely can be one option, but it doesn't have to be. There's so many more aspects of how to take care of yourself. Yes, absolutely. And and while we're on the topic of taking care of ourselves, I think it would be interesting to dive into the relationship between body care, but in the more holistic sense that you've just described, and longevity. Because Japan has some of the longest living people in the world and also people who are living the longest healthily. It's, um, it's one of the blue zones, right? Which are the places in the world where people live longer than average, but also more healthily into an old age. And I think many people look at longevity purely in terms of diet, but it's actually more than that. It's body care, it's soul care, it's all of these aspects. That's exactly right. And what's interesting is that it's not necessarily that Japanese people go to the gym more than um, other countries. That's actually not true. It's more about the daily overall movement is higher than other countries. So I think that's something that's really important to look into. So, you know, say 
if you're driving to the gym and then you go to the gym for 30 minutes and then you drive back and that's all the movement that you have, that might not necessarily tie into longevity in this case of, you know, overall daily movement. So I think it's more important to focus on the daily aspect of your movement as a way of thinking about how you're getting enough healthy exercise. So how does this play into Japanese day-to-day life? You walk a lot, I guess. Um, What are the other movement practices that maybe you take for granted, but, you know, for, from a Western perspective could be helpful? Yeah. You know, I like to, every time I come back to Japan, watch and observe, uh, because I, I love seeing, you know, how we do things, um, really just naturally and we don't really think about it. But a really simple example is that, you know, Japanese people, we, we love sitting on the floor. So a lot of times it's very common to sit on the floor in some restaurants or even at home. And, you know, when you think about it, the aspect of moving your body to, um, you know, sit, sit up and down is actually a whole body exercise in many ways. And so this frequent movement throughout the day is actually something that is helpful in getting that overall movement. Another thing that I thought of was in our public radio and our public TV in Japan, every morning there's this um, 15 minute daily movement exercise. And it's very common for, you know, us to do it. So I, I do it with my mom. I also see a lot of elderly people do it every day. Yeah, every morning and it's getting some sort of exercise in in the morning and it's nothing too rigorous. It's not like a hit exercise. It's more just about how are you stretching your your muscles? How are you twisting? Are you breathing? Are you doing breathing exercises? And so, you know, when I realized that, you know, I just do this naturally or this is something that Japanese people all very much know is, is a thing that is an option in the morning, uh, you know, I think you could see how the aspect of moving overall is, is very common. And then I want to also talk a little bit about wabi-sabi um, because I know you've been talking about that recently in your coaching business and this idea of connecting with nature is so powerful. Certainly for my husband, this is a real need. If he hasn't been able to connect with nature, it's very obvious in his body, his attention span, his overall feeling of well-being. Yeah, so this is something that I believe everyone innately knows. You know, why is it that we love walking in parks or spending time in nature, hiking, doing anything that's related to nature. And so this idea is called forest bathing. And um, while it was the Japanese government, um, you know, it's not, I think it's been practiced by people from all over the world. But this idea is to really use our five senses and appreciate nature. And what I love about this is that When we talk about wabi-sabi, there's three main principles of wabi-sabi. And so that it is, nature is imperfect. It is impermanent, meaning that it's always changing. There's seasons, um, you know, there's natural um, life. There's also death that comes in with the ecosystem of nature. And then this concept of being incomplete. 
And what we mean by that is that it's not like nature is good enough when, you know, it's already good as it is and it's always changing too. So this aspect of a complete nature doesn't exist. Yeah. I really like that idea. This celebration of the impermanence or the the fact that it's constantly changing. Yes. And that's why I think it's such an important time now to talk about this because I see authenticity being a term that is used left and right. Yeah. But I don't necessarily think that there's a lot of guidance on how to be authentic. Yeah, totally agree. Right. And so, you know, if we can understand and apply this framework, it means to be authentic is to be imperfect. Yeah. And so, you know, I used to really struggle with perfectionism. You know, I really wanted things to be perfect and that drove me to short-term success, but long-term, it was a constant stressor that I was constantly thinking about. And so if we understand that to be authentic is to accept our imperfections and also celebrate it because it's actually what makes us authentically ourselves, it completely changes the narrative in terms of how to be yourself. Yes, totally agree. Totally agree with that. We've talked about a lot of different elements of the Japanese approach to wellness and longevity. How do you bring these together in your coaching program? How do you teach your clients to, you know, be more authentically themselves? And what is the transformative power of that? Yeah. So in my one-on-one coaching program, uh, the way we like to start is through a six-week self-awareness program. And I named it Sakura because it's about blossoming into your authentic self. And essentially what we do is we, it's a six-week program and we meet weekly and it talks about each of these concepts and we dive into exactly who you are, how to take care of your body, um, you know, how to be authentic, how to create moments of presence. And um, because the whole idea of coaching is that you already have all the answers that you're looking for within you. And Uh it's simply about creating that time, awareness, and space for us to find what's already within you and talk about it to figure out how you could be yourself. I really like that concept. I also kind of struggle with it for a little bit, uh, a little bit because I, and I guess this is related to self-belief. I don't know if I really believe that what is right for me is within me. Mm. <laughs> you know, I think that's a mindset thing that I possibly need to overcome. Interesting. Can I ask what makes you say that? I I don't know. Maybe it's because um, I feel that if it was inside me, I would have found it already. Um, I mean, one of the journeys of this podcast has been trying to discover it, um, by talking to a lot of people who have, uh, but no, it's very, I mean, I'm sure you're right, but I still struggle with this idea that it's somewhere inside and I just haven't discovered it yet. Maybe I'm looking for the tools. Maybe I should do your coaching program. 
I mean, I think something to let go that is sometimes a really hard point is, you know, letting go of beliefs of perhaps limiting beliefs that you have within you. And so that's also something that Wabi Sabi can teach us because, you know, I talked about perfectionism, but also the second aspect is impermanence. And impermanence is about accepting your evolving self. So, you know, what kind of statements about yourself are limiting you right now to who you want to be? And those are aspects that again, we all have. And so I don't want anyone to think that because they have a certain belief about themselves, they can't move forward. That's not the case at all. It's more about, you know, how can we bring awareness to it and come from a place of curiosity? Because at the end of the day, you know, I always think that you know yourself the most because you spend the most amount of time with yourself more than anyone else in the world. But I think we're often told that we don't know ourselves or we, you know, you know, society tells us that we need to buy X, Y, Z to be successful. And um, so it's a lot of rethinking mm-hmm. and reestablishing what really makes us authentic and how to be. And so, you know, it's not an easy task. I want to say, you know, it's definitely very natural to feel that way if you feel like you're, you, you know, you're currently stuck or you, there's something that perhaps is not aligning. I guess you've, you yourself have also gone on this journey personally that you are now coaching your clients through. So how has that experience been for you? How do you feel in your body now compared to where you were two years ago at the beginning of the pandemic when you were still making this transition? I was thinking about how, if we use the Venn diagram of Ikigai, you could say that my previous life two years ago was in some ways, an intersection between what I was good at, um, what made me money. Um, The world did need to have this position filled. And, um, you know, I was, I did enjoy aspects of it. And so, you know, you could say that I was living or found my ikigai. Yeah. But I knew deep down that when I thought about fulfillment, you know, I felt like something was missing. And for years, I used to deny that. You know, I I kept saying, I should be happy. I should be so grateful. I have a great job. I, I'm making a lot of money. You know, I'm very thankful. And it was a long period of denial. And so, um, you know, mo- making that transition, you know, as a entrepreneur, it, you know, it was it's difficult. Of course, you know, you could say I was making a six figure income. Now I'm making zero because I'm just starting off, which is very natural. Um, you know, and you're making your own business. So you're using a lot of your own capital. And so, um, in many ways, it's probably the opposite of what the Venn diagram would have told me to do. But when I think about myself now, I, I know that I'm on the right path because I feel so much more myself every day. And mm-hmm. that I think is the feeling that you get. Um, once you realize that your ikigai is not something that you could rationally try to calculate, it's more something about how do you feel at this moment in time when you reflect yeah. on the things that you do. And to me, I realize that I understand and I appreciate because I feel very calm and I feel like I know who I am and the work that I'm doing is something I really believe in. And so 
I think that's how I would say my journey has been um, in terms of comparing myself from two years ago and tying that in with Ikigai. Yeah, I relate to many, many aspects of of your journey. And I think we've discussed this before as well. Um, But I just wanted to wrap up with three quick questions. And the first of that is, and this will be loaded for you because of the relationship between purpose and Ikigai, but I ask all of my guests this question. And what does purpose mean to you? I think purpose means to pursue your authentic self every day. Yeah, that's beautiful and so succinct. And what about courage? What does courage mean to you? I think courage has changed in definition. I used to think that courage was being fearless, meaning I would not think about being, you know, just running and consistently going. But now I've realized that for me, courage is accepting you are feeling scared and, but pursuing it through the acceptance of that emotion. And so it's about actually taking action on something that you believe in while accepting your fear. Yeah. It's also, it's accepting that you might not know what's going to come next, but also backing yourself that you'll be able to face it. And then what's next for you? What's the next stage of Mogami Wellness? Yeah, so for Mogami, we've worked, we've been working on doing group events now. So right now I work with brands, organizations, and as well as community managers that are looking to create workshops centered around authenticity as well as presence. And that's all centered around building more of a trust, trustful and authentic organization and teams. So um, that's what we've been working on. So exciting. Well, I will be following your journey and the next steps that you take with Mogami Wellness with a lot of interest. I think that creating this really holistic coaching business for organizations and brands and community managers that is founded on some really traditional practices of how to live well um, is really smart. And I'm sure that you will continue to make a huge amount of impact. Um, And thank you also for reaching out to me and correcting me when you heard me talk about Ikigai as being a Venn diagram in a previous podcast. Please, thank you for calling me out on that. Um, Anyone else who's listening, if I say anything that you think is wrong, please do what Sayuri did and just reach out and tell me um, because this has allowed us to have this wonderful conversation. And I also think take a bit of the pressure off if we find ourselves stuck or in a more difficult place in our journey. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you everyone for joining me in this conversation with Sayori Okada from Mogami Wellness. I think if there's one takeaway from this episode, it's that Ikigai doesn't have to be grand. It's not necessarily about finding your life purpose or that one special thing that you were put on this earth to do. It's more about a journey and living intentionally and authentically as uh, we all try and muddle our way through it. I will be switching things up a bit with this season and will now be releasing new episodes every two weeks. So you'll hear from me again next month when I will be talking to communication expert Mario Hellman about authentic communication and leadership. You'll hear from me then. Bye. Thank you.